this is culminating because chapters 9 and 10 really go together, but uh, the end of chapter 9, as, as, we, as Matthew has built this case of all that Jesus has authority over, it, it culminates in the latter part of chapter 9 and all of chapter 10 about the responsibility of you and I and all disciples of Jesus to take up his ministry of announcing the kingdom that he brought. Let that sink in for a minute. Because I think maybe, for normal believers, (laughs) that might be one of the scariest realities of what it means to follow Jesus is to to have to go tell others who may reject him, who may reject us, about who Jesus is and what he has done. But the call has always been to take up that ministry. It started with John the Baptist announcing the kingdom, that the king of the kingdom was here and that the kingdom had come. And then Jesus, through his sinless life and death to pay for our sins and resurrection, secures the kingdom, not in full, but in part. He conquers his, uh, not his, but really our greatest enemy, which is not people, but our own sin by his life and death and resurrection, and then he sets us off as kingdom citizens to announce the kingdom that he has secured. But as the text continues to build, what we see now is that Matthew puts on display for us that Jesus has authority, not just over disease and sin and sickness and demons, and, and, or I shouldn't have said sin there, but because that's where we're building to, is that he has authority over sin. Particularly, what he has is the ability to forgive sin. Of course, that's going to be a theme through the book of Matthew. We're also introduced to another theme here in this text, and that is the growing opposition to Jesus. I think um, if I could speak for a moment into what we're seeing in our world, I think most of us, at least if you're my age uh, or older, 45 or older, can remember a time where, where Christianity was viewed as favorable in the community, where it might do good for your business to, to be connected to a church. And, and we have uh, seen, we've, uh, many of us have grown up with the air that we breathe in the church being programs and, and things directed uh, at a culture that saw the church as beneficial. Three years ago now, when I first came to Trinity and I met with many of you, many of your stories, when I asked, how did you come to know Jesus, was, well, my parents weren't believers, but they dropped us off at church because they thought we should go. The church is no longer a trusted institution. It is no longer valued in our culture. And and we're going to have to make some hard decisions as a church as well, by the way. Because when, when the church is favorable in the world, the model that says, hey, come here and, and participate in what we do works. But things that were once evangelistic because people viewed the, the church in favorable light are no longer. What's my point in all of this? 
My point is that that cultural moment that might seem normal for us, that cultural moment where the church was viewed writ large by the world as, as a positive thing, it is not the norm throughout Christianity nor throughout the world. It is an incredibly and exceedingly rare cultural moment that we have experienced in the U.S. And it's a cultural moment that's gone. And we might be tempted even to, to look on that with fear and go, well, what's the future of the church? But I would remind us that what we are moving into is the same environment in which the church has operated globally for 2,000 years. And yet, here we are. In fact, if we're paying attention, favorable favor in the community towards the church has never really been good for the church. Opposition is. That scares me a little bit. I mean, honestly, if it scares you, it scares, scares me too. But 2,000 years ago, emperors in Rome were saying that the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. One, and only one Roman emperor resigned his position as emperor, and it's because he couldn't eradicate Christianity. The more he persecuted the church, the more the church grew. Well, what is that? What's the point of all of that? It's not to scare you. It is to encourage you that even though we might look at, at what's going on in the world and in the church and go, what's, what's going to happen now? This isn't the, the way things have always been. What we're moving into is, is uh, scary for us, but not for God. Because what we're going to see in Matthew is this, uh, th this growing opposition to Jesus and his ministry. And the more he says hard things, the more the opposition grows. The more he does miraculous things, the more opposition grows. Opposition to Christianity is normal. And the opposition grows as the scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees hatch this plan to kill Jesus. And ultimately, they succeed in that plan. But as we read in Acts, that was part of God's plan. So what I want us to consider from this text today is the power of our Savior over sin. The power of our Savior over sin. Let's look first at the scene in verses 1 and 2. We're told in getting into a boat, that's because the region of Gadara had asked him to leave after all of these swine ran into the sea. Uh, getting into a boat, he crossed over, um, he crossed over the, the Sea of Galilee, that's where he is, and he came to his own city. Uh, this is most likely, uh, in fact, almost certainly to be Capernaum, which is Jesus' kind of uh, base uh, home base for, for ministry uh, during this time. And so he comes back over the Sea of Galilee to his own city. That is not to say the city he was born in or the city he grew up in, but the city he was living in at that time. Verse 2, and behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. We know that when this happened from Mark and from Luke, you can read about it in Mark 2 and uh, Luke, I'm not, I don't remember what, what, uh, what chapter, that, that uh, there's this crowd around Jesus, they're huddled in the house, these people can't get their friend to him, and so they open up the roof and they lower him down in, and so uh, it's incredibly busy, but they're bringing this paralytic to Jesus, and this paralytic is lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, here's a, 
a term of affection. Uh, be encouraged. Be, uh, take heart. Uh, your sins are forgiven. Now, this is interesting that Jesus says that he, uh, we're told that he uh, saw their faith. Because one of the things we've talked about a lot up to this point is that Jesus has not necessarily responded according to people's faith. He's healed people, uh, whether they had faith in who he is and, and uh, what he can do. But here specifically, we're told that he responds to their faith. And I don't think the point here is that, uh, that Jesus responds according to uh, their faith or, or because of their faith. I don't think that's what Matthew is teaching us. Um, many of us, if we've uh, seen any of these, uh, I'm willing to call them what they are, uh, charlatan faith healers on TV who promise healing for people, and then when people are not healed, what is the answer every single time? You don't have enough faith. That's not what's going on in this text. Jesus has healed people regardless of their faith, with or without faith. We even see the apostles at times approaching people and offering uh, healing without anybody even knowing that they were able to, maybe. Jesus is not doing this because of their faith. The whole idea of, of having faith that, that is the size of a mustard seed, able to move mountains, that... that that statement by Jesus is not about the size of your faith. It's about the size of your God. It's not a statement that says, if you have enough faith, you can move mountains. It's about the fact that when you don't have much faith, God still can. And we can't be tempted to think that Jesus is only going to respond in proportion to our faith. So why does Matthew find it important to point out to us that Jesus does respond to their faith here? Well, I think it's because what Jesus offers is not just healing, but forgiveness of sin. And forgiveness of sin never comes apart from faith. Without faith... It is impossible to please God. And so that's the setting. Next we see this scandal in verse 3. And behold, Matthew says, look at this. That's what behold means. Anytime you see uh, something say behold in Scripture, it's, it means check this out. Some of the scribes said to themselves. Now, it might be likely that we think, well, they said this amongst themselves. They, they hear Jesus proclaim forgiveness of sins, and now the scribes, being upset about this, say to one another, this man is blaspheming. But when we consider uh, some of the other passages, again, Mark and Luke, we see that this isn't the case. Uh, in verse 4, notice that it says that, but Jesus knowing their thoughts, not their words. And in Mark 2.6, it says, now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. This was not an objection that was raised out loud. It was an objection that was raised internally in, in their hearts in the, as the Greeks understood them in, our, in their minds as we would understand them. And this, this is scandalous to them as they think to themselves, he is blaspheming. He is making himself out to be God. And while they're drawing the wrong conclusion, they're not doing so for bad reasons. Because only God can forgive sin. Isaiah 43, 25 says, I, I am he who blots out your transgression 
for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Isaiah 44, 2, I have blotted out your transgression like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. These, these scribes know very well who it is who has the authority to forgive sins, and it's not them, and because they don't understand who Jesus is, they don't think it's him either. Only God can forgive sin. Because sin is ultimately against God. And so what they accuse him of is blasphemy. You are doing something here that only God can do. And this is not okay. So their thoughts are not incorrect on who can forgive sin. They just haven't understood who stands before them. But notice two things as we've seen over and over about the context of this passage, is that Jesus is doing miracles. He has been healing the sick and calming storms and casting out demons. He's doing all of the things that validate him as one sent by God to do these things. And they're not noticing that. The other thing is he is able to read their hearts. He is able to know their thoughts. For us, in this passage, as we read it, they think that this is a mere mortal who is declaring forgiveness of sins. And not that God has forgiven sins, but that He can forgive sins. Because when I stand up here and say, God can forgive sins, I'm just bringing a message that God has already communicated to us through His Word. I don't have any authority to forgive your sins. I don't have the authority to read your hearts and to even know whether your sins are forgiven now. Only God can do that. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing. And so to to the scribes, this is scandalous. This is tantamount to claiming to be God. That is what he is doing. And that is what Matthew is asking us to see here. They just don't get it. And so we see in verses 4 through 6, number 3, the rebuttal. The rebuttal. We've seen the scene, we've seen how they think it's scandalous, but now Jesus corrects their thinking. Look with me at verses 4 through 6. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? Could you imagine being those scribes who have not said this out loud, but just thought it in your own mind, and he looks at you and he says, why are you thinking this? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? Now, Jesus is not trying to make a statement here about which words are more difficult to say. He's not saying, well, these words are easier than those words. He's saying what these words represent is easier than those words. And so the question before us and before them is, which task is harder To say that someone's sins are forgiven or to to take a a, a paralytic and tell them to rise and walk. Well, certainly the easier task is to say rise and walk. The healing is the easier of the two. Why is this? Well, because even if Let's say tomorrow somebody were to invent the, uh, the perfect surgery that could make those who can't walk, paraplegics, quadriplegics, uh, f- have fixed spinal cords tomorrow and they could rise and walk and be just fine. 
that does not necessarily mean their sins are forgiven. See, the reality is, is Jesus is not saying that this guy is uh, in the condition he's in because of any sin that he's committed, but just sin in general. He's not dealing the, the, uh, the secondary issue. We have a couple of physicians here today. Uh, if you were to go see any of them, they wouldn't want to just treat your symptoms. They would want to know what the symptoms were signs of and deal with the root problem. Because if you just deal with symptoms, but don't ever fix the root problem, well, you still have the problem. And all of the sickness, sadness, grief, difficulty, paralyzation, birth defects, all of the difficult things we struggle with in this life, they're symptoms of the fact that We live as sinners in a world that God has cursed. They are all effects of sin, symptoms of sin. And so Jesus, seeing the faith of these men and the paralytic, doesn't just deal with the symptom. He goes straight to the root problem, and he deals with the harder things. And when they find it to be scandalous, what does he do? Well, he asked the question, what's harder, to heal somebody, to deal with the effect of sin, or to forgive somebody, to deal with the root problem? Of course, the answer is dealing with sin is much harder than the simple healing. So again, what does Jesus do? Both. Because he's already already declared that this man's sins are forgiven. But, verse 6, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, so that we might know that he is able to do the harder task, he then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. In other words, Jesus is saying, which one's harder? Well, of course, forgiving sins is harder. So, since you don't seem to understand that I have the authority as the God-man who is here to die on account of your sins, because you don't understand that that's who I am, well, I'll simply do both. And so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. He simply does both. Jesus does what is necessary to silence their protests. And in doing so, he does three things simultaneously. He heals the paralytic. He proves that by the healing of the paralytic, he has the authority to forgive sin, and he rebuts the charge of blasphemy. By doing both, he deals with all of the issues on the table. See, Jesus is not only able to save us from the effects of sin in this life, but in the next, which is the much harder task. In fact, I think if we understand Scripture rightly, we see that he never intended to remove all of the effects of sin in this life. He came to pay the penalty of our sin so that they could be entirely removed in the next. And sometimes, by His grace and for His glory and our good, He does set aside the effects of sin in this life, as here, as a validation of who He is and to show us that He has the authority to save sins. But 
but he's dealt with the far bigger problem in our lives, and that is the eternal consequences of sin. And so we see Jesus rebuttal. Fourthly, what we see here is, in closing, verses 7 and 8, is the reaction of the people. Notice verse 7, and he rose and went home. Jesus has already declared his sins forgiven, so we know that that is done to show that he has authority to forgive sins. He says to the paralytic, pick up your bed and go home, and he rose and went home. And since the rising and going home is the evidence of the proof that Jesus has the authority to forgive sin, we can know that this man not only went home healed, he went home forgiven. Because that's what, that's what Jesus is showing us here. And that's what Matthew is showing us. He simply rose and went home. Verse 8, when the crowds saw it, when the people packed in and around that house saw it, they were afraid. The, the Greek word here for afraid is phobeo. We, the noun is phobos, phobia, where, where you get a fear from. Uh, this absolutely means they were afraid. If you have an NIV in front of you and it says filled with awe, that's unfortunate because that's not what the text says. They were filled with fear. And they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. What's the lesson here for us? That we should go around in terror of God all the time? No, I don't think that's the lesson. Because they were afraid and they glorified God. But I, I think there's a reasonable fear here. I, I've said this before, but, and I've got to say it again here. I'm not sure why we're so hell-bent on reducing the biblical idea of fear down to just a healthy respect for it. I don't get it. Why, why do middle school kids want to come to school on days when they can go climb a rock wall? When they kind of freaks them out a little bit at first. Why are our middle school and high school kids going to go ride on a, a, a roller coaster? Why do people jump out of airplanes? Or watch evil circuses? Why is, uh, why is horror movies a, a multi-billion dollar industry? Why do you, and maybe you can't identify with this, and that's okay, because we're not all wired the same, but if, if this isn't you, I'm sure there's probably something like that. Why, why do we go to the Grand Canyon, at least I do, and I'm like, I'm going to get as close to the edge as I can. And it freaks me out a little bit. There's something inside of us that feels joy when we're afraid. When we're standing before something that is far bigger than us. And so they were afraid, and they glorified God. Well, why would they be afraid here? Because if Jesus has the authority to forgive sins, he also has the authority to withhold forgiveness. And as such, it seems like a level of fear is appropriate. And there's kind of two groups of people here. Maybe here in the room, but I'm speaking of, of here in this text. There is the friends. There is the crowd. 
There is, we don't know, we don't know if this was saving faith from the crowd. We know it was fear. We know they glorified God. But when we look at these friends, they had faith in who Jesus was. Seemingly beyond just his ability to, uh, to heal. Because Jesus proclaims forgiveness. And hopefully, as this is a church, I would hope that many of us are like, like these, these men. Understanding who Jesus is. That he is no mere mortal, but that this authority that he has from God the Father and has been given to him as a man is because he, being God in the flesh, has the authority to forgive sins. And how does he have the authority to forgive sins? Because he lived a sinless life, unlike me. And he died a death he didn't deserve to die. Because I do deserve to die. Paid that price for me. And whereas the grave keeps you and I, it could not keep him. And his victory is displayed by an empty tomb. And when we, like them, stop trusting ourselves, when he, as we sang, is our one defense, our righteousness, we are forgiven of our sins. And then there's the scribes who are trying to find ways to explain this away. Who know the law very well and are trying to obey it because they want to cling not to his righteousness, but to their own. They want to bring their righteousness to the table. Like the, if you, like the scribes, reject the authority of Jesus, then you have reason to be afraid. One of the things that's amazing and if you're paying attention in the Gospels, you can see this so clearly, is that with the hard-hearted, Jesus is always tough. And with the repentant, he's always tender. And the same is true for us. I think, in fact, his first move is always towards gentleness and tenderness and mercy and grace but where those things are despised, he will respond in power. He can forgive our sins. Have you turned to him in faith? Will you turn to him in faith? I hope today that you would. Two lessons from this text. The second one is pretty obvious. We've kind of talked about it a lot. But the first one I think needs to be said. And that is that sin is our root problem. Our biggest problem is not social injustice, though that should be confronted where it exists. I, th I think in many ways the question is before us as a church, as we think about serving our world, you know, do we proclaim the gospel or do we address social ills? Well, when I'm done here today, I'm going to get on a plane and I'm going to fly to Arizona. And asking that question is a little bit like asking, which wing do I want to stay on the plane? The left one or the right one? I, I'm hoping that they'll both stay put. And that's the reality for us as well. We should confront social injustice 
where it exists. Our, our, our biggest problem is not equal outcomes. If you're more socialistic or equal opportunities, if you're not, your biggest problem is not financial oppression or inopportunity. We should want to step in those places as well. But all of those things are simply indicative of a greater problem. Why do people get exploited by race or sex or age or financial status? Because sin exists in the world. Sin is our biggest problem. I read a study recently, and I got to shut up because I said I wasn't going to talk very long, but here I am. Amongst church people that showed that most Christian parents are more concerned about where their kids will go to college and how they will provide for themselves in this life than where their souls are regarding what's next. What does it profit a child to gain the whole world and lose his soul? Sin. Sin is our biggest problem. And parents, sin is your kid's biggest problem. It's the number one thing you should be addressing in their life. And in case we have forgotten, well, if your kids still live at home, you have not forgotten. It's the one thing we don't have to teach them. They come knowing how to do that. So it's number one, sin is our root problem. And number two, Jesus is God. It's plain that he's a man. They recognize that. They see that God the Father had given such authority to men. But what Jesus wants to put on display for us and Matthew as well is that Jesus did this to show us that he has the authority to forgive sin, an authority that belongs only to God. And therein is his power to save. Not because he was a good man. Not because he he was... uh, a good prophet, but because he was the God-man. And as God, he's able to make an infinitely valuable payment to redeem us all. And as man, he's able to die the death that we deserve to die. Will you turn from your sin and to the Savior today? I hope you will. If you have any questions about that, see me. I'd be happy to help. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving this authority to the Son. Thank you for sending him to become one of us, to live the perfect life we can't live, to die an infinitely valuable death that none of us could have provided for, to be raised in power from the grave, displaying his ability to redeem us from the grave, to to allow us to not have our lives see the pit. May we not miss who Jesus is, what he has done, and his power to save. May we stand in fear of him Not terror, but joyous fear. And may you be glorified through that. We ask in his name. Amen.